Hey everybody, I'm Micah Rich. And I'm Olivia Kane. And welcome to the Weekly Typographic. A podcast where we discuss our favorite type and design news from the week. Welcome to the first podcast of 2021. I'm very excited. I feel like, Micah, I mean, this is just repeating what's already known between me and you, but we've been planning a lot for this year. We have like mm-hmm. a lot in store. We're bringing in some um, other peeps into the league to help us grow and to help us um, create just great content for the year ahead. So I'm super jazzed and I've just been like holding in all of my thoughts and feelings about all the design news that's been going on for the past three weeks. I'm about to explode. So this is very necessary for me. Yeah, there was a second where I was like worried that I wouldn't have time this week to do the podcast. And I thought about it and I was like, I don't I don't think Olivia's going to accept no as an answer. (laughs) It would have been to do it. It would have been difficult for me because there's rebrands happening left and right. And we shared the CIA rebrand last week, but there's the Burger King one that I've been really excited to talk about. And we got, I haven't done a nerd alert in like two months. Come on. Mm, This is going to be fun. We're we're a little behind. So give us a tease of what the nerd alert is about this week. Okay. So the nerd alert this week is all about the lost art of the ex Libris which is kind of an enigmatic word for most people. It is Latin, um, but it's basically, I will explain it later. Don't want to give too much away, but I can tell you that type nerds and graphic design nerds will love it. I guarantee that's why you got to stick with us for it. I can, I can give you a little hint that I recently got my first tattoo and I discovered <laughs> that these things exist and I was finding them all over the place. And I was like, these are amazing. Olivia, what the heck am I looking at? And she was like, I want to do a nerd alert. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, so I'm pretty excited about that. It's, it's going to be great. But first, we have so much exciting stuff on our plate. I'll get us started. The first link that we're sharing this week, it comes from Fast Company, but there's a whole bunch of media coverage on it. And it is the Burger King rebrand. Oh, my gosh. So I, I'm sure everyone by now has seen this on any social media feeds or on, on like most design blogs. It was literally on my local Chicago news here. So oh. it was on CNN the day it came out. Um, Burger King got its first rebrand in 20 years. It's a new logo. It's a new color palette, new illustrations, new photography, like a whole new set of things. It's a total rehaul, but was really bold and exciting and uh, just everyone can't stop talking about it. I think it's interesting because um, I actually showed it to a non-designer friend of mine, one of my best friends, and she was like, doesn't it already look like that? And so I'm really curious like what what the designery take on this is. So I got that response too. Um, and I think it's really interesting. Okay, so if anyone's been watching like Burger King ads on TV, which I feel like I've recently been paying attention to in the past few months, Burger King has, I was pretty sure was already implementing these colors and this typography, um, but definitely not the new logo. So there's mm. that. Is I think it's kind of been like bubbling and this is like the big reveal. And, and the new logo is a reinterpretation of the logo that existed from 1969 to 1999. That's interesting. Okay. I think I saw a hint of that somewhere. And, uh, you know, I don't know, like, there's something a lot of people have been talking about how this is the rare rebrand that includes personality. That mm-hmm. so many rebrands in the last few years, especially, have gone from 
interesting and unique to extremely generic and this is them doing the opposite what do you think about them well okay so i will have to say i do have some implicit bias here before i go to i dive too deep into it the company that i actually oh i guess this is also news for listeners i started working full-time at jones knowles ritchie which is a branding packaging and lots of other stuff design firm um that's what jkr stands for that's what JKR stands for. Jones I just assumed it was JKR. I follow, I follow them on Instagram now and I keep seeing them posting great stuff. Oh my gosh. So um, I'm working there starting last week and um, I did not work on this project. I will say that, but I did attend a meeting the day that this project launched where our New York creative director kind of walked us through the whole process of this rebrand for like an hour long meeting. <laughs> I mean, I'm definitely not going to keep you guys here for that long, but I will say that like <laughs> I hearing the process behind everything, like the devil's really in the details here. I think anyone that loves typography will like just kind of melt, melt, pun not intended um, for all of this, <laughs> because I think the typography is, you know, really expressive. They focus on the idea that their old Burger King logo, well, designed by Debbie Millman, who's like a very famous designer, was just feeling old. I mean, they did, they showed this really interesting slide during the presentation of all the fast food brands logos from 1999 to all the fast food brands logos in 2019. It was probably a survey of like 15 different logos, Subway, McDonald's, Burger King, Taco Bell, Wendy's. They all got updated between 1999 and 2019, except Burger King. And so Burger King, yeah, it still had these kind of like more artificial colors, like that blue, the yellow that has the sheen to it, which makes no sense because it was supposed to be a burger bun, but burger buns don't shine. That's what the, <laughs> that's what I think one of the creative directors at Burger King said. So it was definitely time for a rebrand. And I think the way they approached it is like still honoring the past with this already great brand mark they used to have while bringing in colors that resemble actual food. So all the whole color palette you can see in a hamburger, which I think is like, a very nice look. People are obsessed with this monogram, which I think once you see it, it's like when you see the FedEx arrow. Do you know what I'm talking about? Which monogram? I I'm do. That about? was one of the first things that I saw about it. So mm -hmm. it, it's kind of like uh, it looks like a tiny, like the monogram just being not the entire logo, but a very tiny version you can see is like a stamp or something. It looks like burger buns with like a cute curvy K in the middle. And it honestly took me a minute which I appreciate that it took me a minute to realize that the curve of the bun on the top and the bottom connect perfectly to the K with just enough spacing so that it doesn't immediately register that it turns into a B mm -hmm. when you like kind of back up. So it ends up having BK in the whole logo, but also a burger. And it's like this playful uh, visual twist. Yeah, it's definitely um, really fun. If you haven't seen it, I recommend looking it up. I think that was that was like one of the last things that I actually like discovered in the rebrand, which I thought was kind of interesting. Mm. But it, it was interesting hearing about the process. I mean, they got uh, they hired some illustrators to create all new paper slips for the trays they have in the in-store dining for Burger King, which is just like a small detail that I love. They also partnered with a fashion designer for all the new uniforms that they have. And they outfitted a bunch of um, New York City Burger King employees in them for the photo shoot to like style them and show them off. So I don't know. It, I got respect too. I noticed, I don't know if it was always this, this way, but I noticed the other day that their website is bk.com. I did not know that. That seems like a pretty bold choice. 
Not to mention, I'm sure expensive, but like, yeah. that's kind of like Nike taking the words Nike off the swoosh and just being like, yeah, yeah you know who we are. We're BK. That's incredible. I love that. <laughs> um, so yeah, that's all I've got to say about it. I think it's definitely worth checking out. It's been getting you know, very well received. I know if anyone has an under consideration subscription, they did a really nice review of it. Um, so worth checking out and like a crazy, just like big whammy start to the year in rebrands. <laughs> I mean, I personally love the like Agatha Christie type that we've talked about before. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, I'm, I'm like a little bit on the fence, like looking at the articles that are describing all of the materials for the rebrand, I'm like, okay, 80 to 90% of this, I love. Like, it's very creative. It's very interesting. It's very different from what else you see. Occasionally, you can see in a photograph or something that there's there's a lot of details like you were talking about, like the redesign for the buildings, for example, have these like vertical grill looking marks in the side of the building. Like details like that are impressive and cool. Awesome. Okay. So our next article you found, Micah, I think it's brilliant and so fascinating and like opened my mind and imagination. It's from Creative Boom and it is titled, How do you design a font for fictional language? I can't remember how I found this. <laughs> it's not a brand new article. Uh, and it was kind of like on a rabbit hole when I was researching other things. And I'd never seen it before, though. So I was like, well, it's new to us. And so it's this graphic designer who designed a typeface for a French singer who speaks his very own language. Mm -hmm. And I was like, hold on, what? <laughs> what are we talking about? And I saw all the imagery that's included in this article. And I was like, wait, this is gorgeous and very unique. Mm -hmm. uh, it's It's some combination of like... I don't know, Lord of the Rings, but but also Uniqlo and like, I don't even know what to make of it. Like it's, it's so wild. I think it's such a fascinating project and like exactly such a wild prompt. So I was reading a little bit about it. The musician's name is Nosfell, N-O-S-F-E-L-L, -L, in case you want to look it up. Whose, they also have a whose full name is Labyala Fela Dajawidfell. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> you, that, I, I hope awful. I pronounced that right. What uh, a cool name. Sorry, right? I just had to interject with that. No, it's worth it. And so there's there's actually a sample of the audio that this artist makes. And so the artist only sings in this fictional language called Clocobets. And this language was invented by their father. And their father and this artist, Nosfell, used to have secret personal conversations at night in this language when this artist was a kid um, romantic crazy and like like the sentimental emotional feel to like having to be asked to create like a whole new character set for a language that is fictional is wild so mm -hmm. i guess there was this whole process of the artist didn't feel like it could be best described in latin characters and so the alphabet's like writing system actually is referencing like other scripts that aren't Latin to better describe the sounds that the artist is making. I don't I don't even I don't even know where to go with that. It's just so fascinating to me. 
I know. I, I like would just stare at this for so long and it's, it's, it's legitimately so cool. beautiful. I know. It's sometimes I feel similar to uh, looking at different fonts for languages that I also don't speak. I feel like I've seen some like Thai typography and other kinds of African typography that I'm just like, I don't know what I'm looking at and I love it. Yeah. Yeah. And if anyone kind of wants an idea of the type style this is in, it's in like quite a modern geometric form if we're like straight up looking at the mark making forms but yeah it, it but there's really hints in here kind. too of like drawing it with a giant paintbrush wow yeah like if you go to his site i think it's a him Je jeremy i think uh oh, the graphic designer that built it right and you kind of mm -hmm. click through their portfolio mm -hmm. uh there's a lot of other projects but one of the ones that I noticed just clicking through randomly was kind of this stippled version of a handwritten version of this. And I was just like, I don't even, this is so creative. I don't know what to do with it. I just thought it was super inspiring. I think a lot of our readers and listeners will be inspired too. So thank you for sharing, Micah. Our next article is <laughs> extra special. And that's because I came across this article which already sound intriguing. It's titled Unearthing Some Truths About Type Design. And then I realized it was written by Janina Aritao, who is one of our members here at the league. So um, just like love seeing our members being out in the world, creating great stuff, using what they learn from their type education and giving it out to the world as well. I thought that this was so valuable that I just really had to share this as well. So it's a quick read, but I think it really packs a punch. It's about Janina recounting some lessons she learned in a recent Type at Cooper class titled Principles of Typeface Design. So Type at Cooper is one of the leading type design education programs. It's based in New York, but I think because of the pandemic, they've been able to offer classes remotely, which I think is great. And so she talks about 10 principles of type design that exist in a way that will help people create their own type, but also talks about type design philosophically, uh, you know, talking about how type design is a lifelong adventure. Um, I think she has this great saying that she says, you know, you can write, you can learn it like riding a bike and you'll get better and better and build specific skills. But even after that, your eye will never graduate. And there's even people that say a typeface is never done until you put it out into the world. Because mm. I know type designers just like to polish and polish and polish and maybe change their <laughs> mind and maybe add some stuff. Um, and I think she just has some like really actually just like poetic takes on type design, especially coming from someone that's a graphic designer. I think it's really important to hear voices that aren't necessarily masters of type design, but people that are still learning it and in it. She had something else that was really helpful that articulated something that I never did articulate when I was designing my first typeface. She says that typeface design is like archaeology. And she talks about she didn't really know how to move her typeface from a regular typeface, a Roman regular typeface to an italic. And I had the same mm. struggle. There's no yeah. like, there's no books on that. I had to do a bunch of digging to the history of italics. And she says, existing typefaces have always served as helpful maps to type students figuring out the rhythm and logic behind typeface design and learning what works and what doesn't. I think that's 
great. I think, yeah, so much of type design is being able to look at things critically and learn from all the great work that is already in front of our faces. So uh, I just could go on about this, but I think this is a really fresh take and a really important perspective for novice designers to have and can like just inspire you as well. Yeah, this is one of those things that anybody who is kind of interested and has messed around a little bit can read this and get some, I think, profound insight. Some of it, like you said, is philosophical. Some of it is really practical. Uh, number six, I really appreciated in type design, drawing and spacing are one, which is mm. kind of a thing no one explicitly says that like yeah. pro type designers understand, but have never really expressed quite that clearly, I think. Totally. And I think it's something that I remember I learned while I was designing type, you know, maybe I wanted a lowercase r to kind of have a wider branch to get to the ball terminal. But then you have to think about that amongst all the other letters. Is there going to be a huge space under your arch in the R that's not going to look good with everything else? Like you can't think of things in silos. And I agree. Mm -hmm. I, I think that's like a really essential principle of type design that needs to be said out loud a little more often. What a darn great article. Another great article that had so many great teaching moments in it that we found is from our friend Oliver, who runs Pint My Type, which is a great video series on how to just use typography better. But he also sometimes writes these companion articles that go with the videos that I like because they're really digestible. And especially someone that wants to give, you know, quick bits out to our audience. I think, you know, you have the video format for an option and you have the text format. I mean, what else can you ask for? So this specific article that Oliver wrote is titled How to Choose a Typeface for display text. You know, how do you choose a typeface that is loud and proud and, you know, grab someone's attention and get someone intrigued? So many of the things that he points out here is like what I teach when I teach people about typography. So I love mm. to see it. I think he talks about the nuances of letter spacing when it comes to display type. Display type should feel very comfortable at large sizes. And sometimes when you take text type, type that's meant for publishing books or long, you know, lengths of text and blow it up to be a larger size. The spacing feels really awkward when it's large. So display mm -hmm. text usually has some more narrow letter spacing. That's a little bit more nuanced. And then again, looking at the nuances between typography, that's great for small sizes and then typography, great for large sizes. Large sizes might have uh, more contrast within a letter form to kind of highlight some of the more beautiful, elegant components of it, where a text typeface has less contrast in the letter forms because it's just sturdier and better to read at small sizes. I think this article is honestly a really great answer directly to the question of why can't I take a text typeface and just make it bigger? Totally. And it, and it really visualizes it. I do really appreciate the way that he visualizes all of his points in here with examples. Totally. Clutch. So good. And our final article this week is from Print Magazine. And since, you know, I know this is the middle of January, but I still love a good 2020 recap or like looking <laughs> ahead to 2021. So I had to slip one in here. Um, and that is Print Magazine's article about 25 of their favorite new typefaces of 2020. And boy, this article is extensive. My goodness. But it's also great because there are so many typefaces in here that I did not know. I knew a few, like I knew Degular. 
That's like Ono Typeco's mm. Typeface that came out last year. That's like a huge hit. And I knew actually Octothorpe, which is a really interesting typeface. It's inspired from a typeface from the 70s. So it like feels very 70s, but also quite like bringing it to the modern age with really great alternates. I mean, this typeface looks like it'd be, from first glance, looks like it'd be really hard to use. But then if you look at the details, everything's connecting in all these beautiful ways and shapes and it feels really cool. I want to play around with this typeface for sure. It's definitely one of my favorites in here. I, I think you knew that I was going to ask. So you just answered which your favorite was ahead of time, didn't you? What's your favorite, Micah? Well, I'm torn, Olivia. Uh, I really love one on here was Malice Stencil. I love Malice Stencil. I've been seeing that around. I don't know. How, I've I don't never know seen this articles. before in my life. Oh, you would love it. I mean, it's... Uh, they use millennial pink in here so like that matches they your do. hat they do yes um, i'm currently wearing this color on my head and my, I love and my it. hats keep on going <laughs> wait your hat's what i was in my hat's like also a little bit dirty so it adds the gray hue that's like slightly <laughs> in the millennial pink plus you're wearing it like a new yorker with just this giant poof on the top I, I I think that's, that's how a, everyone wears beanies. But. Yeah, in New York. <laughs> okay, that's fine. <laughs> uh, but I, you, the nerd in me has to admit that part of the reason that I love this stencil font, besides it just being very cool, is uh, one of their spec examples is a poster for Harry Houdini, who was like my hero growing up. Like I that, was in love with Harry Houdini. That's like the image that really stood out to me when I was scanning through this article. I was like, ooh, it, that is one. gorgeous. Okay, but so I said I was torn. The other one that I really love that I don't think I've seen this one either is Paper Tiger. Oh my God, I was going to say, yeah, what the heck? How have I not seen this? It is so I, cool. It's, it's beautiful. Like, what the heck? This it's and, So this old vintage, you know, recreation of uh, like clean and gritty versions of, I don't even know how, like Victorian poster typography yeah the script in it is really kind of unusual but I, that's how i would describe it but there's there's script there's sans serif there's semi-serif it's a whole family that like so goes so well with each other i really love a semi-serif which is honestly a category of typography i didn't know existed until a couple years ago i feel like there's groups of people in typography that recognize semi-serif and there's people that say that semi-serifs are just sans serifs well so that's that's why I always get confused. <laughs> you know what I you know what I say to that? What? Semi-serif is fun to say. <laughs> that is true. That is true. I like semi-serif. We're, we're sticking with it. Um, I love that one. I also saw some that we talked about last year, which I loved. The Q project we talked about was this really kind of funky, crazy experimental typeface that was very modular. And then the one below that, Sisters, I remember we talked about because it got reviewed by Ion Design and also had this kind of like really great mm -hmm. whimsy to it. It is really a nice variety of typefaces in here a lot with whimsy and then a lot more um kind of serious workhorses i saw eric speakerman um was noted and credited on one of the typefaces here as well as uh heffler and co typeface which to be honest i didn't realize they released something this past oh cesium yeah which is hilarious because apparently they have three different typefaces that are named after periodic table elements mercury tungsten now cesium and how did i not never catch on to that but now i i have 
Why mess with what works? Right, right. So that's also, I, I feel like I got caught up on last year in this one article, which was yeah, helpful that's for fair. me. Dude, that just reminded me of Hoffler and Co. And I forgot all about, like, their fonts were, when I started out in design, like, my epitome of what I was trying to use. Like, yeah. they reference here the other ones that you were just talking about, like Mercury and Tungsten. And mm -hmm. Tungsten, I bought and I used constantly. Mm -hmm. And I think, oh, I think our first company logo, my partner designed in a Hoffler font. Wow. Actually, oh, shoot, the original League logo. She also designed in a Sentinel. They're Sentinel. Yeah, yeah, yes. I mean, I think this is like a great at a glance where typography is right now. I think it was in Janina's article she said something really beautiful amongst the other beautiful things she was saying about how typography is like leading us, it leads the future of graphic design. Whatever typography is being made now is go, is the future of graphic design because graphic design to stay current is using new typography and using what type designers make. And so that relationship that you're like designing for the future like blew my mind. Wow, I like I that. It. I like that a right? lot. Now is actually kind of a cool time to take a break and say, hey, thank you to our sponsors. Thank you to Adobe for helping to sponsor this week's episode. Their creative suite is one of the standards of design software and comes with a subscription to like a giant library of fonts that you can install, embed, use pretty much however you like. We've even got a few of our fonts in their library as well, if you're looking for those. And uh, we are grateful for them supporting the community with us. All right, Micah. Is it is it nerd alert time? It's nerd alert. <laughs> I, so I spent a lot of time before we jump into it talking to a handful of members in the last few weeks, like league members getting on and meeting people that I hadn't met before and saying hi. Unfortunately, didn't have time to meet everybody. But there was more than one person who was like, why did Olivia stop singing the song? The nerd alert? Boom, boom, boom. <laughs> that one? Did I stop? I didn't even realize I it. I think there were also one or two times, though, where we, as a joke, included you singing the, like, intro and outro. I swear, during season one of this podcast in 2018, I used to sing the outro. Maybe we'll bring it back this year. Just... <laughs> oh, my gosh. Yeah, you guys, you have to stick with my nerd alert. Maybe you'll get a little song here. Okay. All right, so this nerd alert, tell us what we're in for. Okay, so like I mentioned at the beginning of the podcast, we're talking about ex libris, whose plural form is also ex libris. So it's never ex libris's. There you go. <laughs> I thought this was called ex libri up until 20 minutes ago, but you know, we all learn something new every day. Yep. So an ex libris, what it is, it's defined as a book plate. Uh, what's a book plate? A book plate, you know, at its most simple is a printed slip of paper with the name of the book owner on it. Um, and at its most extravagant, it's a tiny piece of artwork placed inside one of the books in your collection. So this is kind of an, an item of yesteryear, but it is returning. And um, in fact, I recently, just last year, I bought my friend a Christmas gift and she loves books. And so I got her a custom Ex Libris stamp where she can stamp her books. So I think all so of this thoughtful. is coming back in vogue. Well, thank you. I mean, if I was really thoughtful, I'd design it myself, but I wasn't at 
that level yet, but I'm, I don't know. I mean, you're a I human. Guess. I mean, everyone's I only got so much time. I'm wondering, like, do I just start an ex Libris company? Like, I'm I, in. I'd be so content if I was just doing ex Libris commissions. Like, Let's I would find you some clients, some Gutenberg <laughs> apprentice over here. I'd be so happy. I want to be um, a 15% partner. Yeah. So, anyone listening, uh, if you want to commission an ex Libris, this is my. My new maybe venture. Okay, so the history, like like what we're supposed to be getting into. So what else is on the Exley wrist besides a book owner's name? Um, often it was a coat of arms or a crest or a badge motto, and it was commissioned by an artist or a designer. And basically graphic artists at the time and illustrators at the time would be doing them. So when did they start? Well, they started back in Germany. I mean, the earliest known marks of ownership of books dates back to ancient Egypt, but the earliest known ex libris really date to Germany. And, you know, if you are knowledgeable about the, you know, movable type history, you'll probably already be guessing that ex libris kind of became popular with the advent of movable type. Because hmm. before movable type, Books were really, really hard to come by and they're really expensive to commission. And only a really small select few people would have libraries books. But then after movable type was invented and Gutenberg, you know, his printing press came to fruition, literacy was was going up and up and up and book sales were going up and up and up. And people that really took pride in their books would have their book plate commissioned um, and placed inside their library. One, to show pride in someone's library of books. Books weren't necessarily cheap back then, even if they were more accessible. So it was something that you really took a lot of pride in if you were a book owner. But also, if you lent out a book to someone, they would know mm. that that's your book. They better not See, be that's interesting. That. See, now, when I first discovered these, I thought that it was like a publisher's thing. And you kind of mm. mentioned that sometimes, occasionally, that would be true. But for the most part, it was, I own this book, and I'm putting my stamp on it. And that's kind of cool. Right? I think that's why, I don't know, I think that's why this is going to come back around. Because I think books today have a different meaning than they have in the recent past. But I'll get to that in a little bit. So... Wait, can I share type. a fun detail that, that I found that I think is related to this moment in history that you're describing? Yeah. Which is, I, I was just like one quick sentence on the Wikipedia page saying that these, these kind of replaced book rhymes, which Ooh. in turn had replaced book curses. Oh. And I was like, what does that mean? And so I, you know, clicked on both of those links, the heavy research that I did. And a book rhyme would be a tiny little short poem printed inside the front of the cover uh, to discourage theft and say who owned it. Mm -hmm. And the replacement there was the much more evil sounding one of a book curse, which was literally like, I am cursing you if you ever try to steal this book from me. That's yeah. crazy. What? And that makes sense because some ex Libris were known for having threats also written. Um, mm. So it'd be like the book plate owners and then like some threat. And I have to say, um, there was a book I used to borrow from the Pratt Library when I was at school. And it must have been donated to the library because it still had an ex Libris in it. And it was the first ex Libris I ever saw. And it was like a very beautiful plate on the inside. And I don't remember the saying, but it was like, 
to steal is to be a swine or a fool. And it was like some Shakespearean language, <laughs> but it was amazing. And I, I haven't forgotten it. So Ex Libris, I guess I should explain, directly translates to from the library of. So if you're trying to make that connection, there we go. Um, Albert Durer, who was a notable printmaker in the 1500s, also became a notable ex libris designer. And so I think he kind of kicked off artist as ex libris designer. And then down the line, there was Art Nouveau artist, Aubrey Beardsley, a bunch of arts and craft movement artists, a bunch of art deco artists, Eric Gill, who did Gill Sands, mm. was really famous for creating them as well. Um, and so, so many people, I can't even like tell you the list of people that have ex Libris because I looked them up and it's like so large. I mean, George Washington, basically any royalty in England got them, you know, all any famous celebrity from the 1500s to the 1950s probably have an F. Scott Fitzgerald, Ernest Hemingway, Sigmund Freud had Oedipus on his. You, you should look it up if you <laughs> are interested. So, and you know, so now today, I think people collect all sorts of ex libris and there's a bunch of ex libris societies of collectors um, because mm. it's like a whole thing. And so some people collect, you know, all the ex libris designed by a certain artists or they'll collect certain celebrity plates. Let's say you want all the F. Scott Fitzgerald ex libris because maybe he had different artists work on different ones or there's a lot of different motifs. So if you go down this road, which I went on this past few days, you'll find out some, there's like a huge collection of ex libris with microscopes on it mm. for scientists. And that was like a certain motif or chess pieces was really popular. So celebrities had ex libris, but also institutions had ex libris. So certain libraries will have their specific ex libris for their collection to make sure people know where the book is from. I think it's really interesting that the people that do still commission ex libris will sometimes have different ones for different sections of their libraries. Apparently, mm. many Sherlock Holmes fans have very specific Sherlock Holmes ex libris. I'm sold. What? I feel like out of all the things that fan club would do, that makes sense. That makes perfect sense. Right? Now I need one. So... Ex Libris, I think they're getting a revival, but how did they become out of vogue? Well, in the 1950s was the advent of paperback books and books became cheap and people didn't really value their books like they did when there was only like leather bound hardcover books available. Mm. So there was this whole different connotation. And then, you know, eventually with eBooks becoming a thing, a lot of people don't even know what Ex Libris are. But yeah. I'm here to change that. I think they're incredible. I will be sharing a link next week of some beautiful modern Ex Libris I found that a design studio specializes in. There's a bunch that people make now. They can be on slips of paper. They can be stamps. I think if I was to design mine, I'd do a stamp on a slip of paper on the inside of my books. But I haven't designed mine yet. So Yet. Yes. Here's, here's what I'm thinking. Uh, we start... This ex Libris company, yes, will come up with some clever name. Yeah, people will pay us buckets of money to Absolutely. do these, and then at the same time, we also start a black market version with just a slight variation on the name, mm -hmm. where we research famous old people's existing ex Libris, and we make counterfeit versions yes. and sell them as if they're real. I love it. Let's talk tomorrow morning about this. <laughs> <laughs> but seriously.
Exley. I mean, I, I'm a huge Ex Libris fanatic. Um, there is so much more I could be telling you. Um, I know I didn't get into the details of typography or even some of the more specific motifs or, you know, manners of making these, but, uh, that is yet to come. I really want to get a book on Ex Libris design hmm. because they exist. And I think I'll be a little bit more well-informed, but I just think that like for all the people that didn't even know what it was like, go get yourself an Ex Libris. Yeah, for real. I can't believe like this has such historical significance that like it used to be such a common thing for at least a certain class of people. And I had never even heard of it. Right. Wild. W-I-L-D. So, Micah, I do have to say, I also thought there was a specific type of ex libris for publishing houses or printing presses. For some mm. reason, that has lived in my mind. I'm going to have to go through my Meg's history of design when I'm back home just to confirm what that is. Anyone that's curious about that, stay tuned. Hmm. Fair enough. All right. There we have it. Well, shoot. How interesting. And what a great collection of links this week. I know. I think we had a really nice variety. It was pared down, but, you know, quality over quantity. I think that's sort of one of our missions going forward this year is to, you know, we've kind of heard from a lot of our members that it's useful to kind of have recommendations for what we think is cool as fellow type nerds. And so one of our goals is to make sure there's there's no fluff that we're like sharing the stuff that we really think is neat that you will love and keeping it nice and tidy, All which right, is a Micah. good excuse to say uh, thank you. Shout out to our members who are wonderful humans i'm lucky that i got to talk to some of you i'll talk to the rest of you soon we'll set something up so that i can say hi um and if you don't know about our membership go to the league of mobile type check out the membership see all the goodies that you can get for being a member and kind of supporting this kind of stuff that we're doing i condone that our membership is great you won't want to miss out Full and on that note uh we're gonna have more fun stuff to share next week because the podcast is back, the newsletter's back, we're enjoying ourselves. We're rocking so we, and rolling. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We will see all you wonderful type nerds next week with great new stuff. Adios. <laughs>